Welcome everybody, this is State Sponsored Programming. I'm Sophie Dasko. I'm Will Blystaff. I'm Maximilian Schell. And I'm Catherine Bepler. And we're here today, we have two very special guests from the Victims of Communism Foundation. So if you would please introduce yourselves and talk about your interests and areas of expertise. I'm Suzanne Schulte, I'm chair of the North Korea Freedom Coalition and been uh, also honorary chair of Free North Korea Radio. Thank you. And I'm Maria Werlau and I head a project called Cuba Archive. Um, which is part of the Free Society Project, a NGO that I co-founded. Awesome. That's absolutely wonderful. You do wonderful work. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. So we're going to ask you guys a series of questions, not only on your areas of interest, but on communism in general as a philosophy. So Mr. Blyseth, I think, is going to, to lead us off with Sure. That. So first question. So to what extent do you consider the rising attractiveness of the socialist ideology among today's youth an issue? I'm very, very concerned that uh, people are having a distorted view of socialism. I'm very concerned about youth in America um, not uh, being taught history, not understanding the historical record, um, and that there's this uh, illusion that's just a complete lie, uh, and unfortunately, um, it, it's really been spread. I just we were talking. Well, this is really fits in with Cuba, but with Che Guevara being glorified, who was a, dick, a brutal, uh, dick, uh, brutal mass murderer, basically. Um, so I'm very concerned about that. I think it's something that is one of the reasons why I've gotten so involved with the victims of communism sure. Memorial Foundation because they're doing great work at getting the truth out about this. And I think it's really important for eyewitnesses to speak out. So I'm very much involved in giving North Korean defectors, for example, the ability to have a platform to speak out and have hosted hundreds, because I think that people need to hear the, these stories, because they're, they're losing the factual evidence of why these systems of government have been such failures, and when the, when the, the uh, contrast of that are right before our eyes. And Korea, as I you know, mentioned during the presentation today, is a clear example of that. I'm really glad you asked that question because I'm very concerned about this. Um, and I, I would like to urge you, and we could do more programs um, on this issue, um, but, but I would like to urge you and your listeners to look into several topics. Cultural Marxism and the ideology of Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci was a neo-Marxist because he was not a Marxist-Leninist completely, but he was founder of the Italian Communist Party, and then he was in prison um, during the time of Mussolini, and he wrote extensively from prison, and his writings are available. But it's really important to understand this because I'm convinced Fidel Castro was a student of Antonio Gramsci. His whole idea is um, cultural hegemony, to destroy societies from within in their institutions, the family, the churches, the schools, the universities, the media, it's and penetrate them slowly. And I, I'm convinced that is happening in America, that there's a plan. And it's not because I'm paranoid, because I've talked to defectors from Cuba. And also, this is another um, um, little thing that you can look into. It is the videos that are of, um, uh, presentations that a famous Soviet defector did in the in the early 80s. I think he went to several U.S. universities. His name is Judy Bezmenov, and he's in YouTube. 
and there's several of his um, presentations where he discusses how there's a deliberate plan by the KGB uh, to undermine U.S. societies, especially universities and the media, and slowly brainwash them to destabilize society and bring in Marxism, but through the back door. So people don't even know. Most of the young people here that, you know, including my son who loves, you know, social, um, socialists, uh, what, is, what is it that they call it? Social Democrats, they call themselves, yeah. socialist Democrats. And, uh, you know, we have <coughs> conversations, you know, this is the media that he's consuming. And I'm like, do you realize what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. um, and when we start to carve, he's like, yeah, you're right. You know, and he's a smart, very educated person. So that scares me. And with a mother that does this work, I mean, I don't take my work necessarily home, but they know what I do. Sure. And my kids, for example, are very well aware of the fantastic propaganda campaign with Che Guevara. But that's deliberate. And, you know, the KGB formed Cuban intelligence, which has formed Venezuelan intelligence, Nicaraguan intelligence, and they have a department called Active Measures that prepares this. They have people working on this 24-7, and they have different agencies of the government that are there to do this only, to, 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 to dis disseminate this in the West, to transmit it through news agencies and radio stations and... You know how I said Cuba doesn't have internet? Well, the government has a very good structure, and they have talked to students, university students of the um, uh, computer science department. They allow them internet time if they work, you know, to, to sabotage um, our websites, to put in stuff for the, they work for the state. And this is, you know, we have a different system. We're not used to thinking like that. We can't even believe that's possible. If I hadn't talked to so many people involved, I wouldn't believe it. I'm like, no, that can't be. Well, that's the way it is. And it's undermining our universities and our media. And it's cultural Marxism. I'm convinced of that. All right. Um, so when I find myself talking about communism or Marxism, one of the things that I commonly hear brought up is that Marxism works fine on paper, but not necessarily in practice. So my question for you is, do you believe communism is as unethical on paper as it is in practice? You want to go first? Oh, yeah, yeah I think yeah. Uh, absolutely. I get, um, the, the, something about the communist uh, uh, you know, mindset, it, it, it's destroyer of human, uh, human spirit. It, and, uh, and one of the things that you know, I mentioned in my lecture is that every communist system has to have political prison camps and repression and isolation and propaganda and brainwashing. They all have that in common. So I think it's an evil uh, system um, and even bad on paper because it destroys the human spirit and it demeans human life rather than freeing the spirit and freeing human life. I think aside from the practice, we know what to expect from the systems in practice, in paper, to answer your question, I believe it's flawed because it ignores human nature. If you want to equalize people, you forget that that's almost impossible to do because people don't have the same talents, dispositions, ethics, values, willingness to work, um, even you know desires. I mean, I think human beings in general want to have good health care, food, shelter, etc. But aside from that, we're all so different, right? So to equalize people, and then something that troubles me on paper is when you have the word dictatorship. 
I mean, they're looking for the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's already a problem on paper. But I've talked to a lot of Cubans about this because even my husband grew up in that system. He was part of that elite I talked about. And, you know, he was able, his father was sent to head the news agency in Peru when he was 17. So he was able to get out and start to see the contrast in, and start to question. And eventually, he was part of Cuban intelligence and, and after an 11 year career managed to defect. But he told me when he was young and he was, he believed in this stuff. I mean, and he came from a family that believed in this stuff. And little by little, um, you know, he started to question. But he said that when he studied, uh, he studied with the KGB in, in Moscow, for example. They taught them Marxism. That already in Marxism, you know, the, that they, they have a hard time explaining how they're going to get to their utopia, the dictatorship of the proletariat. So even in the theory, I think it's, it's flawed. Um, the scary thing is how many people can fall for it until it's too late. Well, even if we're talking about, you brought about young people, young people and being enamored with this. Even my son and his high school government teacher said to him, absolutely said this to him, that the, that the problem was that communism hadn't been perfected and hadn't been tried. And, and I was so shocked when he came home. This is his government professor. Said it's, no it, would be, it would work great. We just haven't found the right model yet. We're still trying to perfect it. And that's what he's being taught in government class. Well, it's idealist. Think about this. And the universities tend to be elitist. I mean, we come from universities. I've been in that medium. My children went to very good universities. Um, I think there's something there in the academic mind that makes people feel superior. Like, I know what is good for you. I know what kind of system you need to, and it's communism or, you know, whatever other fashion of it. There, there's something of that, I think, that we know better. I have the sense. I don't know. Absolutely. So talking about, especially North Korea, do you believe the possibility of a Cold War II between the U.S. and China? Actually, I think we're already in in one <laughs> because the, one of the things that we I think a huge failure that uh, that we made was this whole illusion that that China, when it opened up economically, would open up to re political reforms, and that never happened. And people do not appreciate the dangers that are facing the Chinese people. Whether the whether you're a trade unionist, a human rights lawyer, a Tibetan, the second child in your mother's womb, a Falun Gong practitioner, a Christian, all these a, a Buddhist, all these people that are being repressed uh, in China and the horrific violations of human rights that are occurring in China, we have looked the other way because we have um, been having this trade relationship with China, which has actually been a detriment. To, to, the U, to the U.S., uh, but at the same time, uh, we've turned our backs on the suffering that's happening in China. So this is a conflict that's really starting to escalate now because China is trying to move their influence worldwide. They're, they're, um, in, they're involved all over the world, mm -hmm. and they're trying to outpace us. They have, they've built up their military. They're actually turning an island into a landing strip. The, and they're in a very aggressive measures in the United States 
they have uh, these schools, the um, Confucian schools. They've mm -hmm. got students here that actually have to report back to the government. Um, they're, we're in a, in, a, in a very serious collision course with China right now and think that we brought it upon ourselves by failing to recognize that just opening up economically doesn't mean they're going to open up to political freedoms. And that never happened. So what we now have is a capitalist, a communist system where all the capital is c controlled by the communists, but the, even though they've opened up to economic reform. And it's terrible, because I, I work with the Chinese uh, human rights community as well. But I also want to say, I was really, really upset when Beijing was chosen to host the Olympics in 2008. It especially impacted the North Korean refugees because China did not want the world to know that they were hunting now men, women, and children, starving men, women, and children, and forcing them back to North Korea. And there was almost an extermination policy in China to get rid of the <coughs> refugees because they didn't want them to be embarrassed. And they turned, uh, well, they basically turned Beijing into almost a cap, um, a military, uh, what's the word, um, uh, ca um, mil when you, when the military takes control of a city or whatever, they almost... Martial law. Mar thank you, thank you. Martial law in Beijing. Thank you very much. You're because they didn't want the people that were coming from the international community to see the atrocities that the Chinese were committing and the, the, um, in the, to their own people. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea, I'll never forget this, the Olympic Committee was like, oh, we're going to give them the Olympics. They're going to open up. China will open up. This will be a great... Uh, move forward and what a tragedy for those uh, I mean just it, it was just ludicrous so we have got to stop betraying our own principles and hum human rights and the belief in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights the, the belief in freedom and democracy we have got to stop betraying that for economic gain and that's what I think keep, continues to happen and we need to speak out for people that are suffering and the same thing goes for what happened in Iran when we didn't speak out for those people. And Cubans, what's happening in Cuba now, um, and North Koreans or whatever. We have to put these human rights issues at the forefront. I think the Chinese um, issue is very important to this country. I've long, long had problems with it, just treating China like a normal partner when they're committing all these terrible human rights abuses. Uh, but I think it's proven something. Exactly. It doesn't work. But now it's very serious because now there's economic interest. There's vested interest to keep the system going from the people, the, the, the companies that are doing so much business. In China, it's the same thing in Cuba. You have the Spaniards are running the hotels that the military owns. And then there's certain sectors of the economy, the Canadians, for example, in um, this, the mining sector, et cetera, that have created vested interests. They're not huge in the big picture, but they're huge for them. And those people are the ones that are pressing to, to continue opening up under the terms of the regime, which was what the Obama administration did. And it doesn't work. It hasn't translated into rights for the Cuban people. Uh, one good example, for example, in 2002, the Congress passed a law that opened up agricultural trade with Cuba. So since 2002, we can sell all sorts of agricultural products, machinery, et cetera, to Cuba. There is a very small private sector in Cuba, the only private sector, if you want to call it, although their rights are subordinated, were the small farmers. Because when the revolution came, their first um, rhetoric was, we have to you know, split up the land from the big landowners and give it to you know, the small farmers. 
So you still have like 77 to 9% of the land in Cuba is owned by these small private farmers. So that was, I said, let's watch this to see what happens. Did the farmers gain access to the markets? Because they had had access to agricultural sales from European countries, and nothing had been gained. Well, still to this day, all the, all, everything is bought through the state company, and the farmers are still as repressed, you know, 16 uh, years later. But this is what the Cuban government did to all the farmers, uh, all the agricultural companies that are selling products to Cuba, and Cuba imports food from the United States a good bit, they had them said, okay, we'll buy from you if you agree to go to Congress and lobby to lift all the economic sanctions. So that's how they do it, and that's how they create vested interest to keep the system going. It's pretty brilliant, but people don't see through it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, both of you are obviously very passionate about um, more or less like fighting against communism, but like what inspired you or like was your call to action to like com combat communism basically? Well, the way I got involved was with North Korea um, was I hosted the first defectors that had ever been in the United States to speak out. This was back in 1997. There weren't that many defectors. Now there's over 33,000. Um, one was a colonel, uh, army colonel, and one was a diplomat. <clears throat> and I will never forget, they stood in front of the audience on Capitol Hill and they said, We're, we are living proof before your very eyes that the regime, uh, the North Korea regime, is misusing humanitarian aid. Because the army colonel looked like he'd never missed a meal. The diplomat was a bit scrawny. And they were saying all the humanitarian aid is military first. It's going to the military first. And the, um, the diplomat, then, they, then the diplomats, but the average citizens aren't getting any of the humanitarian aid. But I became very passionate about it because nobody was paying attention to the human rights violations. It was all focused on the nuclear issue and the, the threat from the, pro, the nuclear program. And um, that's what really got me to be, it became really a labor of love for me. But I'm also very active with um, raising issues like China, like Cuba, on, and doing forums on Capitol Hill where we bring in people that have escaped from there. And I think just because of my own uh, belief in the rights of humanity, and the, I'm, I'm a big believer in the, the individual liberty and freedom that's made me very passionate and continue to work on it. Me too. It's a labor of love. Why do I do it? Do you see those faces? Those, those are thousands of people that are on our database, and each record is a life. It's a story. It's a suffering of the families, and those are the people who paid the highest price, their life. But there's so many people. I mean, there's so many Cubans. Every Cuban has a story of family separation, of injustice, the people in prison. As I told you, Cuba allowed since 2013 for opposition uh, members to go in and out, and they've been hosted by organizations abroad. So I've gotten to meet a lot of those people. Some of them are infiltrated by the government. They're created. But s many are not, or some at least, or maybe have. You know, it's a guess. But their story in is inspiring. The people who are in prison that are suffering right now, many young men especially, and especially Afro-Cubans, but of all, you know, even women, but mostly men, young men, are in prison for the crime of pre-criminal social dangerousness. That's just somebody decides you are have a propensity to attempt against the morals of the socialist state. That's in the penal code. There's thousands in prison for that. 
and the conditions in the prisons are horrific. A lot of them commit suicide or cut themselves to be taken to a clinic because they can't stand it. There's a lot of deaths in prison. Just for being unemployed, you can get four years for pre-criminal social dangerousness. It's, it's a horrible thing, and it's not, these are not prisoners that are protected by Amnesty International because they're not prisoners of conscience. They're just there and they're deemed to be a problem. Or, you know, many dissidents that civil society members are put in prison because they have a bag of cement that they, you know, it's illegal. Or because, and that's, it's crazy stuff. For the crime of disrespect, one of the women that I chose to put on, on there is serving for disrespect or for not, or for, you know, bad-mouthing the dictator, saying Fidel Castro was evil, that sort of thing. Wow. So that inspires me. But in my case, you wanted to ask a question? No, no I no, just want to tell you that I think also clearly my childhood had an impact because my, cam my family, both my parents had... Um, been part of the resistance against the Batista dictatorship that was from 52 to 58. And my father, in fact, took to the mountains under Che Guevara to fight against the dictatorship. And my mother uh, from Havana was in a, in a cell of people doing resistance and selling bonds and stuff. And then immediately they saw that, wait, this is not what we fought for. So then, of course, they left, and my father actually died in Cuba. Um, fighting the regime, and I think when I was little, I absorbed all these stories, all the people coming, you know, they were sending her, the cousins, to my house because the government was going to take them when they were 14 and 15, and I was surrounded by this turmoil and human suffering. Fortunately, my family moved to Puerto Rico, so we sort of escaped that, and my brother and I had a more normal childhood, but I... I'm certain, and I saw my mother suffer through all this. Later in college, I became active in the Cuban Students Association and took it up again, and it's been a lifelong quest. And um, So I think there was something there that was passed on to, to me through my family to, to fight for, for freedom, and I take that very seriously as a moral duty. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of state-sponsored programming. If you're on Twitter, make sure to follow us at SS underscore programming for all updates regarding the podcast. We're on most podcast platforms, so wherever you are, make sure to give us a like, follow, and five stars. This is state-sponsored programming signing off.